Well, good morning. My name is Paul Graham, and if anybody's visiting, I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. Welcome visitors and cottagers. Glad to have you here for the summer. Uh, we are in the middle of uh, our series on the book of Colossians, and we're going to be looking in Colossians chapter 3, right in the middle of the, the verse there, if you want to look up that in your Bible. There's a Bible in front of you in the seat back if you don't have one, or your phone, or whatever you're using. It'll be Colossians chapter 3. Now, there's a sort of common misunderstanding that maybe you have run into with some friends of yours uh, who are not believers and the friends sort of talk to you about sort of like this, that, that Christianity and faith uh, is somehow sort of, they think of it in terms of somehow a future benefit, you know, that it's something that you just want to get into heaven with. And so people say things like, you know, there might be a God who wants to forgive me, but I want to have fun right now in my life. And so what I want to do is I want to live my life my way by my rules right now. And on my deathbed or when I'm sick, you know, I'll ask God to forgive me and I'll slide into heaven right at the last minute, right? They sort of talk to you that way. Have you ever had anybody talk to you like that? You kind of get the, they think they're going to get the best of both worlds, right? Um, you know, they're going to have, live their life their way now and also slip into heaven. Well, apart from sort of staggering theological flaws in that argument, which we're not going to get into this morning, uh, there's an important point that, that they're missing out on which is that the Christian life is not just about what is to come in heaven and that the good life that God wants for us and gives to us and the happiness and the joy and everything that comes with it is a life that begins right now. And so the flaw in that argument is that somehow their life is going to be better without Jesus right up until the last moment. And then they'll just get into heaven and get all that benefit too. Their life is not going to be better without Jesus in this life. And our life is better right now with Jesus. And so we have to look at this Christian life that we are called to, the life of faith that we are called to. God intends better for you than you might possibly imagine, not just spiritually and not eternally, but physically and socially and mentally and culturally. Right here, right now, God intends a better life for you than you can maybe imagine. Not in the narrow view of the world in terms of you know, whatever it is they're thinking of that they're going to enjoy, or, or get some sort of pleasure out of in the view of the world, but not better in that way, but better in the full and compute, complete view of God. And so in Colossians chapter 3, as Paul is writing this letter, he does indeed begin the, the first few verses of chapter 3. He begins with an appeal to his Christian friends to consider their future in Jesus. He does start that way. If you look at verses 1 to 4, he talks about the fact that their, their spiritual reality is, is that their life is now hidden or their life is now wrapped up with and held safely by God because of Jesus and that we will be with Jesus in heaven. And, and Paul starts out talking that way. But then... Almost the whole of the rest of the chapter, except for those first few verses, Paul shifts his attention from heaven or from glory to the very mundane and menial and messy realities of this life right here and right now. And he starts to talk about what the Christian life is meant to be like right now and how we are to live right now, the life that God holds out for us right now in this here and now. Let me just open up in a word of prayer before we look at Colossians this morning. Father God... You do hold out a life for us that is more than we can imagine, more than, certainly more than the world imagines. And there is this, there's this big gap out there in understanding of how, you know, there's something 
that the world just, they think that they, they're going to have something better on their own. That if they just seek life on their own and seek pleasure on their own and, and seek uh, worth and identity on their own, that it's somehow going to be better than finding it in you, Lord. And it takes a miracle. It takes a miracle of salvation for that light to come into darkness and for that truth to replace that lie and for them to see the offer that is freely held out to them. That you offer them a life that is full and overflowing right now, right here. Not just later on in heaven. But there is a life that you intend for them, intend for us, that is full. And so, Father, help us to see it this morning and and live it, put on the new life that you've called us to. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So then, if we review just quickly the text from verse 4 on, and this was from a couple of weeks ago at the youth service, um, it says in Colossians 3, 5 to 11, you remember um, at the youth service, uh, the teaching was in, in these verses here that we need to put this old life to death, that the old life of our sinful nature needs to be put to death and we have a new identity. Do you remember that? Do you remember that sermon, those of you that were here? And that we put to death in, in Colossians 3, 5 to 11, it says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all of those things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. This is all the old life that is put to death and that Paul says we must now put away or, or forget about. And then in verse 10 he says, and we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so, so you remember that message was that there is an old identity, there's an old self, there's an old life that we have to put away and that that old identity is no longer us. There absolutely is a spiritual glorified reality to our salvation, and it is about our final destination, but it doesn't start there. Our faith in Jesus starts here and now, and God intends for us to put away that old identity, all those negative things that he talks about in verses 5 to 11, and how we have a new identity. And that the Christian faith, Paul says, has a direct impact on who we are, what our worth and our value is, and our character and our behavior. It has, the Christian faith is not just something about the future. It has an absolute relevant impact today about things like racism and sexism and classism and all the forces in the world that are trying to conform us and the things that cause us uh, all, all these problems that he mentions in verses 5 to 11. But Paul doesn't only talk about what we're set free from in this life and all the negative things that we are to put off and put to death, he then goes on to describe what we are all, what we are to put on. In other words, he moves now in the structure of the text in Colossians 3, 12 to 17 to now talk about the positive aspect. If the old life is dead, then what is the new life that we're called into? And so we look now at Colossians 3, 12 to 17, and, and you can see now that it is a parallel of 5 to 11 in the positive. Paul is putting this forth as a contrast to verses 5 to 11. So he says in Colossians 3, 12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so you take those two paragraphs, or you take those two sections of text that Paul has written, and you can see now, more plainly, maybe the structure of it. In verse 12 and following, Paul is describing a new life that has to be put on, and that new life is in immediate contrast to the old life that has been put to death. In verses 5 to 9, Paul has given us that description of the traits and behaviors of our old sinful life. And in verse 7, he emphasizes the fact that you were living in them. These things that I'm describing is what your life was. That is how you were living. That was the description of your life. But as you heard at that youth service a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you don't have to be bound by that old life. You're set free to a new identity. You're set free into a new life. And so Paul doesn't leave us without an alternative to the old life. The Christian faith is not just about, and maybe some of your friends have talked this way too, it's just a whole bunch of rules about what you can't do. Right? It's a whole bunch of don'ts. Just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that's what it sounds like if you stop at verse 11. Because 5 to 11, it's just, Paul's just saying, look at all these old things that you have to stop doing. But he doesn't stop there. He says, we're not just getting rid of things, we're replacing them with something new. And so now, in the parallel text that continues structurally to counteract 5 to 11, he goes on in 12, and he then starts to talk about the alternative to the old life. In verse 12 to 16, he elaborates on what he means by putting on the new life. And these verses are in contrast to what came before. So he says in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are the traits of God. These are the traits of Jesus. We've taken off the old life and its traits, and we've put on Jesus and his traits. And this is similar to what Paul taught in Romans. In Romans 13, 13, he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he says it there very clearly, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says put on this new life, he's saying put on the traits and put on the characteristics of Jesus. We are to be transformed, we are to become more like Jesus. And so then Paul describes the kind of behaviors. And again, they're not rules. This isn't a code of law. But these are behaviors that those characteristics that I just mentioned should produce in people. He says if you have those traits, if you put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, he says you should bear with one another. That would be the patience. And you should forgive each other. And you should have love. And you should have peace. And you should have thankfulness. He mentions thankfulness three times. And he says you should be in the word. And then he says you should teach and admonish or you should disciple each other. And you should sing hymns and songs together and do everything with Jesus in mind. And so Paul takes this list of traits, these characteristics of Jesus, and he says this is how your life changes and the behaviors that follow. Now there's two keys to understanding the message here. There's there's two things that I want to look at today to sort of unlock what is being said here. And the first thing is to notice in this text is that these things are done together. And you may not have noticed this how many times this is said. It says, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Love is the bond of unity. Peace, we are, in peace we are called in one body. Let the word dwell richly in you, plural, teaching and admonishing one another. 
and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This text is all about the life lived together. And I'm actually glad there because this text is one of the texts that that your friends will turn to and say, you see that Christian life, it's really boring. You guys just sit around and you sing songs and you you sing hymns and you, uh, you know, sing these spiritual songs to each other. That is not the life I am looking for. Right? And so you read that in there, but I'm glad that before that it says there's also teaching and admonishing one another. So it's not all just sitting around singing, it's also instructing and teaching. And so if you're here today and you saw all the singing and psalms and, and spiritual songs and you're thinking, that's not really for me, you gotta look at that earlier part too, which is kinda where I sit, which is that we're to be teaching and admonishing one another as well, which is like, you know, kinda life on life, you know, sort of discipleship and mentorship and teaching each other. So it's, it's all in there. Don't get hung up on the singing and stuff because I'm not big on that. But I like the fact that that first part is in there. You know, so you're not supposed to pick and choose the verses you like, but I like that first one a little better than the singing one. But I know some of you here like the singing more. So some of you are all excited because you get to get together and sing and worship and celebrate together. And I'm like, yeah, it's not so exciting. But the teaching and admonishing I'm really into. So you pick which one you like best and it's all there for you. We got it all, okay? I just wanted to point that out, that it's not all just harps and songs and singing. It's... Also the teaching and admonishing and, you know, living life together. But the whole point here is that in unlocking this, we understand that this is lived together. We are a body, the Bible says. We're a temple. We're a family. We're a church. The Christian life was intended to be, and it most commonly is, lived out in the community of faith that we call churches. This is what God intended. This is what Paul, this was normative Christian life, is that Christians would get together and they would do all these things together, that they would express these characteristics together, that they would do these things to one another. This is, Paul is starting to describe right now, the better life that God intends for us to have. You get it? Like The better life that God intends for you to start having right now is in the church. He planned the church for us to be together as Christians so that we could start having that better life right now. A life that is compassionate and kind and peaceful and patient and loving and teaching and guiding and, and singing too. I'll throw that in there for those of you that like to sing. Right? That life that Paul is describing in that paragraph, who's going to say no to that? Who doesn't want compassion? Who doesn't want kindness? Who doesn't want guidance? Right? Who doesn't want joy? And this is right here for us now. And Paul intends us, and God intends us to have this life now. And it's important that we see these traits that Paul describes here and these characteristics of Jesus that we are to put on and these behaviors that they only really have meaning in community. They're presented here as behaviors expressed in community. They don't have meaning otherwise unless they're expressed in a body, in a family like this, with one another, towards one another, in the bond of unity. And it's important because these traits and behaviors are not just some sort of personal achievement for ourselves, which we can sometimes get into in our Christian walk. We think, you know, I need to become a better person as a Christian, so I need to be more kind or I need to be more patient. And as I become more patient and more kind, it's some sort of accomplishment for me. I've sort of gone up the scale on my Christian accomplishment. You know, it's kind of like finally running that 10K or or finally losing 20 pounds or giving up coffee. Those are sort of individual accomplishments. That's not what Paul is talking about here. These are not individual accomplishments. These traits are meant to have an impact on the people around us, not just be a badge for ourselves. They are important to each of us, but they're important on how they affect others around us. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, how you do at having compassionate hearts and how you do with patience and how you do with kindness and how you do with love and how you do with peace affects me. And how I do with it affects you. See what I'm saying? 
You can't just look at this as something individual to yourself. It affects the community. It's part of the better life that God has called us to. And it's especially important to this and its effect on the people around us and the importance of it in community is the second piece to understanding this right at the heart of this list. And secondly, the keystone to this, or what I thought of as I was writing this, the Jenga piece that you cannot pull out of the middle of this verse or this community or it all falls together. Anybody play Jenga? Any Jenga players out there? Yeah, you know there's that piece in the middle and and somebody finally pulls that last piece out and the whole thing comes apart. Well, this is the Jenga piece to this verse as I kept thinking about this. It's the keystone. You pull this piece out and all the traits and all the behaviors and all the community and all the life that God has called us to falls apart. And that Jenga piece that we can't call out is in verse 13 at the beginning, or second part, it's forgiving. It says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And I pick out forgiveness in this list of many different traits as the keystone or as the Jenga piece for two very important reasons. And the first reason is this. First is that we know that out of all these characteristics, forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. So if we are to be a Christian people who are living Christ-like lives, who are to be a testimony of what God has done for the world, then at the very heart of that message, of our message to the world, is forgiveness. And so at the very heart of our community and the very key cornerstone of our community has to be forgiveness, right? The reason Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died his sacrificial death and was resurrected into new life was for one main thing. It was to provide for the forgiveness of sins. And it's by the work of Jesus that we are forgiven. Without Jesus, forgiveness is utterly impossible, no matter how hard we work for it. If Jesus didn't come and do it, there is no way we would be a forgiven people. But with Jesus, forgiveness is freely available to everybody who asks. That's the good news of the gospel. That is the center of our community. That's the reason we're all sitting here together today. Because forgiveness is the good news of the gospel. And so Paul, even in this short sort of compact letter to the Colossians, he actually, you know, uses very valuable extra eight extra words here in order to give us that exact theological reason for forgiveness. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Because God has forgiven, we must forgive. And so at the heart of this community, at the heart of this new Life is forgiveness. And if we are a people who are forgiven, then we must be people who forgive. But secondly, I think forgiving each other is the key to this whole new life that Paul describes here because nothing else is possible here unless there is forgiveness. All these other traits and all these other behaviors, if we don't have forgiveness, then they all fall apart and we don't have any of them. Paul's describing a community of each other's and one another's who are compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and loving and at peace with each other and who are teaching each other and are singing and praising together. And how can any of that be sincere if there is no forgiveness at the heart of it or if there's unforgiveness, right? Number one, how can we present ourselves with any credibility as a people with the message of ultimate forgiveness from God if we ourselves can't or won't forgive each other? And secondly, how can we live authentically in this new life of love and peace and humility and compassion if there's unforgiveness present? I would say we can't. And so that's why I take this idea of forgiveness as sort of the Jenga piece in this in this verse. Because if you don't have forgiveness at the heart of your community, then the compassion isn't there and the peace isn't there and the kindness isn't there and the humility isn't there. 
And the peace isn't there, and the teaching isn't there, and the singing isn't there, because there's unforgiveness at the root of it, and all that other stuff is either just sort of a plastered-on, insincere facade, or it's not there at all. Without forgiveness, all the other traits and all the other behaviors fall apart. Because unforgiveness sabotages peace. Unforgiveness twists love. Unforgiveness disrupts peace. It completely devours humility and it hinders compassion and it destroys unity. If you don't have forgiveness, you don't have any of these other things. And so as Paul describes the life that God has called us into, a life in the church, a life among believers and in the world of compassion and peace and wisdom and instruction and unity and love, he plants at the very heart of that call to that new life, he plants at the heart of it forgiveness. We're a forgiven people and we must forgive or all these characteristics and behaviors begin to fall apart. We can't authentically live any of them before the world or before ourselves. And so then that naturally leads us to have to elaborate on forgiveness. How are we going to do those things if we can't be forgiving people or if unforgiveness resides in our heart? And Paul uses here a very special verb for the word forgive. He uses charizomai as opposed to aphemiel. And it means bestowing favor. It's used literally as canceling the debts, as in the parable of the two debtors in Luke 7.42. And the word is used elsewhere to convey the graciousness of God's giving or forgiving. And so Paul uses this particular word for forgive in terms of canceling debts or or by means of granting a favor to those who have offended offended you. If you have a complaint against them, Paul is saying, cancel the debt. If you have some complaint against somebody, he's saying if you're going to live in this new life, you have to erase that debt, cancel that debt the way Jesus canceled yours. God doesn't count your sins against you. He has set your sins as far as from the east is from the west. We just read that in the psalm this morning. You all read it together. God has set your sins as far as the east is from the west, it says in Psalm 103. God doesn't repay us according to our sin, it says in verse 10 there. He says, so we should also forgive. But how many times has this happened to you? You've offended someone in the church. You know, maybe not personally or not intentionally, but your actions have clearly offended someone. And you know you could have done things differently. You realize in retrospect that you could have avoided it or you could have behaved better or you just weren't having a good day that day. And so you approach them and you talk to them and there's a discussion and and there's a kind of forgiveness But from then on, afterwards, when you're dealing with that person, it just seems like they're still kind of holding it against you. They've said they've forgiven, but you're not sure. Like, you still owe them something, and you feel like there's a debt there that really isn't canceled, and it feels like they're repaying you according to that offense. Has that ever happened to you? Is that common, or is that just me? Maybe i got a lot of people who I've offended. That's just me. But, you know, you try and make it right, and it just feels like they're still holding it against you. It's not really canceled. You know, or maybe you've had this situation. This is maybe even more common. You're talking to somebody and they're complaining about this or that or some sort of offense that's happened to them in the past or something has happened in the church or somebody has done something to them and they're still talking to you about it and they're chafing about it and they're saying something like, you know, well, I've forgiven them. It's all forgiven, but, you know, they go on talking about it and explaining that's the reason why they're behaving the way they are. And so you're sitting there thinking, well, you said it was forgiven, but you're still talking about it. And that was last year. So how forgiven is it really? Has that ever happened to you? Ever have that happen in your conversations around the church? Right? I'm getting really personal here, aren't I? You know? (laughs) I think that's happened. It's happened to me. Some of you have done it to me. I'm not going to name names, but I've done it to you too, I'm sure. 
right? But this is at the heart of it. This is what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to get real here. This is where forgiveness is at the heart of this community. Forgiveness is at the heart of what God intends for us and, and means for us as a people who are going to live authentic Christian lives before the world and with each other. Because these are symptoms of unfinished forgiveness, or it's symptoms of shortcut forgiveness or incomplete forgiveness. And one thing I think that we need to get better at is being honest with ourselves and that we don't too quickly say something is forgiven if it really isn't. Let's just be honest if it's not forgiven and let's do the hard work of getting to true forgiveness so that all these other characteristics and traits and behaviors can blossom and flourish. It's built into our church culture, isn't it, that we want to quickly say things are forgiven because we know we're supposed to. Right, we're Christians, and you've heard this message, and you're thinking, he's going on about forgiveness again, and I already know this, and I've forgiven everybody that I know of. And, and we know that we're supposed to forgive. And so we want to shortcut really quick to the fact and say, yeah, it's all forgiven, it's all fine. And we want to get there really quickly because we know we're supposed to. And secondly, we want to get there quickly because we want to consider ourselves as forgiving people. Right, like we have this self-image of ourselves as Christians. That, you know, I'm a forgiving person. I, I'm Like, that's who I am. If you ask me, am I a forgiving person? Yeah, I'm a forgiving person. If I was to ask you about forgiveness, most people do not willingly admit, if I was to ask you today, yeah, you know what, I'm actually not a very forgiving person at all. There are a ton of people in this church who I totally have not forgiven yet. And there's a lot of things that have happened that I am still holding a grudge with years later. Right? Like nobody answers that way, if we're being honest, right? If I ask, are you a forgiving people? We want to think of ourselves as forgiving people. But we got to stop and maybe be a little more honest that maybe we're not as forgiving as we think. And we've got to do the work of real forgiveness. Let's not be so quick to declare forgiveness granted or accepted if it really isn't. Let's be honest and do the work of full apology and true forgiveness so that it's really done and not just half done. And that there's lingering hard feelings and there's lingering barriers to ministry and there's lingering barriers to fellowship so that there can't be humility and peace and kindness and gentleness, and singing songs, and teaching each other, and all this stuff that Paul is talking about, that's not going to happen if there's lingering unforgiveness. But let me tell you something. Forgiveness is a lot easier when you get a good apology, isn't it? And so as we unpack forgiveness really quickly here to get really practical, I want to look at apology first, and full apology, and then true forgiveness. And there's this great book that I'm going to use these five points from, The Five Languages of Apology, by Chapman and Thomas. And it's so much easier to forgive when people apologize correctly. And so let's look at five languages or five stages of apology. So if you're thinking right now, I want you all just to think about something maybe you've done, maybe somebody you need to apologize for, and you think about these five stages for yourself. Or think about somebody who maybe you need to forgive because you're still holding a grudge against them, and you think about how it would feel if they came to you with these five things and whether it would help you forgive. The first thing about a true, full apology is that it feels regret. The first thing is, is you say, I'm sorry, right? You've done something wrong and you admit it. You regret the fact that you did it. You regret that you said that thing. You regret you did that thing. You regret whatever happened. You say, I am sorry. I feel regret. Secondly, a full apology takes responsibility. This is the point where you say, you know, I was wrong. This is what I did and this is what it cost you. This is an important thing because oftentimes we offend somebody and we say, oh yeah, I'm sorry I did that. And we don't even really know what we did. And in fact, we don't really care what we did. We just want to say I'm sorry so that we don't feel guilty anymore and we can get it over with, right? And we short-circuit apology just as much as we short-circuit forgiveness. But full apology takes responsibility for what was done. 
It says, I was wrong, and I know what I did. I know that I embarrassed you, or I know what it cost you, or I know that I offended you, or I know that I hurt your pride, or I did this, or I did that. Like, I can actually articulate to you exactly what it is that I did, and I take responsible for it. I was wrong. I know what I did. I know what it cost you, and I, I'm the one who did it. It's not your fault. It's all on me. So you regret it, and you take responsibility. And then thirdly, a full apology makes restitution. You go to that person, you say, you know, you can't clean up spilled milk, but what can I do to try to make this better? You know, like if I offended you in front of somebody, can I go and talk to them and say, you know what? The other day when I said that, you were listening and I said something and I shouldn't have said it. So if I go back to that person and I explain to them that what I said was wrong, would that make it a little bit better? Could I pay you back in some way for what I did? You know, or if whatever, if I whatever it was done, you've, you find some way to make restitution or offer restitution to make up for what you did. And then a full apology repents. And you say, you know what? I know I was wrong and I want to make up for it. And I'm going to make changes so that this doesn't happen again. Because this reflects something in my heart. The fact that I said that thing or did that thing or offended you in that way, I got to be honest, that reflects something in my heart. I was careless or I was arrogant or I was something. And so I'm going to, I'm telling you, I'm confessing to you that I need to make changes. I repent of that. I want to turn in another direction and not have that happen again. I can't promise it'll never happen again, but I acknowledge the change I have to make so that I don't hurt you or other people again. And then fifthly, finally, full apology gets to the point where you ask, will you forgive me? I'm sorry is so much easier than will you forgive me? You got to get to that point where you ask, Will you forgive me for what I did? Not just I'm sorry for what happened, but I need your forgiveness. Now, if somebody came to you like that, with an apology like that, does that make forgiveness a little easier in the community? If somebody comes to you saying, I know what I did, and I'm sorry, and I want to make it up to you somehow, and I'll go make it right if I can, and I realize the the flaws in my nature, the sin that caused me to do that, will you forgive me for that? Man, that, that, that makes it a little easier to forgive, doesn't it? If people apologize like that. And so as people, we need to be people of apology so that we can get to true forgiveness. And in true forgiveness, there's five things that goes along with true forgiveness that come from God's example. In true forgiveness, now you're on the forgiving end of this. You've got to forgive people. And they may not come to you with a great apology like that, right? We can all practice being great at apologizing. That would help. But they might not come to you with a great apology like that, but you've got to work through true forgiveness. And true forgiveness has five things too, I think, that I pull out of God's example. It does not resist restoration. It rather accepts what can be restored. Right? Aren't we glad that God does not resist restoration? In fact, he was proactive in creating an opportunity for restoration. And if we come to God asking for forgiveness of our sins, he doesn't say, well, you've got to work a little harder. I'm sorry. You know? I mean, I know that you're sorry for what you did, but I'm going to make you work for it a little more. God doesn't do that. God is eager for restoration. He doesn't resist restoration. And so we as God's people have to be the same way. If somebody comes to you and they are sorry for what they did, you don't play hard to get. You don't put them through the ringer, right? You don't resist restoration. You just say, yeah, well, yeah, they, they gave me some lame apology, but they didn't really mean it. They need to work a little harder at it before I really forgive them. No, no, no. True forgiveness. You take whatever grain of apology is there and you take it for what it's worth and you accept it. And you say, thank you for coming to me. Thank you for offering me that apology. Of course, I forgive you. The most important thing on my heart right now is that we restore this relationship. And so true forgiveness doesn't resist restoration. It doesn't keep people at arm's length or keep them at a distance or give them the cold shoulder for the next six months. 
true forgiveness is like God's forgiveness. It rather accepts what can be restored and tries to restore as quickly as possible the relationship that was lost. The second thing that's important about true forgiveness is that it bears the cost or it bears the wound and yet doesn't count it against the person that caused it just as Jesus did. And this is an important lesson to learn in forgiveness. It was a hard lesson for me to learn in forgiveness. That when something happens, when somebody is offended, when something truly serious happens, where there is a breakdown of relationship and harm has been done, we can't ignore the fact that harm has been done. And sometimes we think that forgiveness is somehow just, well, he said I'm sorry and I'm just supposed to forget that harm was done. No, harm was done. You have to count the cost of what it cost me my reputation or it cost me humiliation or it affected my family or it affected my kids. And I'm, that's, it's not going to go away. I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life. Right? There are things that are going to be different or I'm going to, it, it, it hurt me. And so forgiveness doesn't just wave it off and pretend like there was no harm done. It doesn't just pretend like there was no cost. True forgiveness counts the cost and bears that cost and doesn't count it against the person. And so it's a way of saying, yeah, you really did hurt my feelings. You know what? And it's, it's probably going to stick with me for a while, but don't worry about it. I'm going to, I'll, t- I'll take that on. I'm bearing that. You don't have to bear it. Just as Jesus did on the cross. He bore the wounds, and Jesus will bear our wounds. You know, it's really interesting. Jesus, in his resurrection body, he comes out of the grave. He's got his glorified body. He's going to have this body for eternity. And he goes and visits the disciples in his new glorified body. And he says to Thomas, touch my side, touch my hands. Because the wounds are still there for eternity. We're going to glory in the wounds that Jesus bore for us. And so then we have these little wounds against us in our life, and we think we can't bear them. Jesus is going to be the only glorified body that's got wounds on it for eternity. And we're going to glory and celebrate in that, that he bore our wounds. And so true forgiveness, by God's example, counts the cost, acknowledges the cost, but bears those wounds. Thirdly, true forgiveness allows grace to cover what is lacking. And in our example from God, it's, it's, for, it's grace for everything. Like, it's all grace for us. Like We have no redeeming quality at all. We have nothing without the forgiveness of God. And so God's grace has had to cover all of our life, all of our sin. Without God, we have nothing to commend ourselves. And so if God has exhibited that grace towards us, whatever is lacking in the person, whatever they can't make up, whatever they can't pay back, whatever we have to bear, we take that to God and we say, you know what, grace is going to cover it. I've forgiven what I can and you've made restitution for what you can and whatever's left over, we allow grace to cover it. Because grace has covered everything in our life and so we allow grace to cover it and we show grace to the people around us and allow grace to cover their sins and their failings and their, and their shortfalls when they offend us. And then fourthly, true forgiveness restores the object to its former status. And I think in this case of the example of God in the parable of the prodigal son, when Jesus talks about the father whose son wanted, wished he was dead, wanted his inheritance today, which is basically in that culture saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want the will to be executed right now. And that's what the son was saying. I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. So the father says, that's fine, I'll give it to you. And he goes off and he lives his life, and he ends up eating with the pigs at the end of it all, right? He wished he could eat with the pigs. He wished he could eat out of the trough with the pigs. But he goes back, and he thinks, I can go back, and I can at least be a servant in my father's house. They eat better than the pigs. 
And so he goes back, just hoping to be restored to being a servant. But what happens in that story? When he comes back, the father says, forget, forget being a servant. Here's a robe, here's a ring, kill the fatted calf, you're my son. The relationship is restored perfectly. True forgiveness restores the relationship to the former status. Right? So you don't act differently later. It's not weird. You, you, true forgiveness restores that relationship to what it was before. And then fifthly, it forgets what is behind and it looks forward. Micah 7.19 says, God treads on our sin. It says, God takes our sin and he casts it into the sea. You ask God about our sin, this theological mystery here, but you ask God about our sin, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've forgotten it. It's all buried. It's all dead. It's all gone. All I see is our relationship now going forward, restored. And so true forgiveness forgets what is behind. You're not talking about it a year later. You're not talking about it a week later. You're not talking about it an hour later. Right? It's done. It's in the past. If true apology and true forgiveness has taken, taken place, you don't have to bring it up again. Because your relationship isn't based on that anymore. It's based on something new and restored. And so true forgiveness forgets what's behind and it looks forward. Just as God does. And so in a perfect situation, both parties will do all of those things. Right? In the worst situations, neither one will do any of that. Right? So there's two possibilities. Neither party does any of these things, or both parties do all of them. Right? And the more honest that we can be about the completeness of our apology and the completeness of our forgiveness, the more likely our forgiveness will be complete. And so what we have in the rest of this list and traits is really the test of our forgive, whether forgiveness is complete or not. That's another way of looking at these verses. When you look at these verses and how Paul describes the new life and what that new life is together with all the one another's and together's and in unity and in peace and in love, then that's really a test of whether forgiveness has been complete or not or whether there's unforgiveness there. Because can you be humble and kind and gentle and loving and patient and compassionate with these people that you have forgiven? Because if you can't be kind and gentle and loving and patient and compassionate, then there's still unforgiveness there that needs to be worked out. And so this, this, this text is really a test of whether that, that keystone of forgiveness has happened. Right? Are those traits that Paul lists here what characterize your relationship with other people? Or would you rather describe it as kind of cool and withdrawn and grumpy and impatient and critical and complaining? Because Paul didn't write that in these verses, right? He didn't say, be reserved and cool and uncompassionate and arrogant and not gentle with each other and complain a lot. That's, that's not what he wrote. He wrote all the opposite of that. And so it's a test here in these verses whether our forgiveness is complete. Because if it's more the cool and withdrawn and grumpy and less the kind and gentle and humble and patient, then maybe you've started forgiveness, but you haven't got all the way through. You haven't made it to the end yet. Until we get forgiveness complete, then how we treat people will not reflect what Paul intends for us in the new life. The life that God calls us to is a life enriched by being together. It's a life that is enriched by us being together in community, and it's impossible without forgiveness. If we're going to have this great life that Paul describes and that God intends for us, we have to be really, really good at forgiveness. We have to become great at forgiveness. So that's Paul's message for us, that God has in store for us a rich life, a life that Paul says here is surrounded by a 
church family that is full of compassion and kindness and humility and love and peace and unity, a family who will teach and who will instruct and who will encourage, who will build you up, a family that will support you in this new life. But you can resist it and you can sabotage that new life if you are unable to truly repent or to truly forgive. If you are either unapologetic in your behavior or you are unforgiving of others, you will, it will set you at a distance from the very community, the very family, the very life that God has called you to. Unforgiveness will taint and ruin and corrupt the new life that God intends for you in Christ. And so right at the heart of all of this is we have to be a forgiving people. So take Paul's instruction here to heart. Take off the old self and put on Jesus and bear with one another and take no offense and where offense is given, reconcile quickly and forgive. We have to be a church that doesn't compromise the good news of the gospel, right? Remember, the good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven and we don't want to compromise that message by being a people who are unforgiving because we have no message of forgiveness to the world if we ourselves are a people who cannot forgive. And... We have to be a church family that lives authentically in the new life that we have in Jesus Christ, that lives authentically with compassion and kindness and humility and patience and peace and unity and care for each other that's untainted by any hint of unforgiveness because unforgiveness will sabotage all of that. So take Paul's instruction here to heart. Our new life is to be a witness of the goodness of God to the world. So let's live out the new life. Let's live forgiven and let's forgive others as we live. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for your word here in Colossians. And I just pray that that we would understand that Jenga piece. That all this other stuff, all this stuff we want to be, compassionate and humble and loving and at unity with each other, all that stuff we strive for and we want to be able to wave our banner and say, that's us. That is all going to collapse if we can't forgive and be forgiven. And so, Father, I pray this morning that if there are people here, who knows who people were thinking of? I was thinking of people in my head as I'm preaching. If there's people we have to go back to and apologize to to start with and go through all those five levels of apology and really own what we did and show our heart to them that we want the relationship restored, or if we need to go to somebody who's offended us and say, you know what, you may not even know this, but I was offended, I was hurt, I'm holding this against you. I want our relationship restored. I want to go through these steps of forgiveness so that I can bear the wound, count the cost, put it behind me, restore our relationship, and move forward. Whichever side of the coin we're on this morning, and probably both, Lord, Father, just by your Holy Spirit, reveal it in people's hearts that they would keep short accounts and they would deal with that even today. And if not today, then before we get here next week so that relationships can be restored, Lord, at the heart of your message to the world and at the heart of your community and your new life is forgiveness. I pray for that today in the lives of every single person here. In Christ's name, amen.